we're glad that you are, are watching and participating with us. Uh, we, we definitely want you to stay uh, safe, uh, in particular if you're at risk. So um, we're delighted to have those of you watching and then as well as those of you here this morning. Uh, I also just want to say a, a big thank you to uh, Tim Pulver and Mark Egerdahl and, and, and really the crew that, that is, is behind the scenes cleaning, disinfecting, making videos, checking everything, getting here early, leaving late, things of that sort. It, it takes a lot of work to, to try and make sure that we are still uh, really adhering to the guidelines that are recommended to us uh, to be able to have services, to be able to um, social distance and clean and all of those things. And so thank you for, for your patience with us with that. But I, I, I think that, uh, that Tim Pulver and that whole group of people uh, deserve a great big thank you. So if you see them, you can give a round of applause too. But if, if you see them, uh, would you just, would you thank them from a distance, but thank them. Um, maybe send them an email, write them a letter. Just let them know that you appreciate the extra effort they're putting into things uh, to make sure that we have a safe environment to make sure that we can still uh, meet together. So uh, thank you so much for all of you who are helping and participating with that. Uh, over the next three weeks, so today and over the next two weeks, I guess I should say it that way, we're going to jump into a book that I think that every believer should master. Okay, now obviously we'd say, well, we should master the whole Bible, and, and yes, we should, but, but Leviticus is going to be hard, okay, to master, and you could probably spend your whole life on that book. You could spend your whole life in First John as well, but I think it's a little bit more feasible, and it's, it's a book that I think every believer should master. When I say master, I mean that you know the content of the book so well that there's no verse within the whole book that you don't understand its meaning and how it fits in with the rest of the book. So, so as you're reading through 1 John over the next couple weeks, if you come to a verse that you don't know, mark it. Like, zero in on that, I'm going to learn what that means, okay? And then keep reading, and as you stumble across another one, mark it, okay, I'm going to learn what that means. And you, you do that to the whole book of 1 John as you're reading through it, and guess what? The more you read over it, some of those are going to become more clear, and some of those you, you might have to, you know, don't Google, <laughs> but you might have to search, okay? Uh, not, Google's fine, but just make sure you know what you're reading when you search like that. But maybe you look at a commentary or even call a friend. Discuss it with a friend. Call a pastor. But know the content so well. Obviously, memorizing it would be a huge plus. It's not out of the range of some of you for memory. That might be difficult for some others. However, this book, this little book, is extremely strategic for Christians to be very familiar with. Um... Many of you, probably many of you, in fact, I want to do a little hand-raising here just for a moment. How many of you, after you became a believer, someone told you to go read 1 John for assurance of salvation? How many of you, that's the case? Raise your hand if that happened to you. Okay, yeah, so numbers and numbers of us. Okay, so it's not just like two or three, we're talking 20 to 30, maybe 40 people who say, okay, somebody told me to go read 1 John so that I can have assurance of my salvation. And, And I think that's actually a wonderful thing to do. However, if you don't know how to use 1 John, it might just be really confusing and actually might give you a big headache as you do that, okay? So my goal over the next three weeks in some ways is to equip you to be able to use 1 John in the way it was intended. We'll talk about that here in just a little bit. So let's talk about the book briefly. 1 John, it's this little book towards the end of your Bible, 1st and 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, and Revelation. There's the, the little grouping of five books there at the end. Three of, four of them are very small, 1st uh, John, 
is obviously the first of those epistles. 1 John is not so much of a letter as it is a homily. It's, it's almost like a message like that maybe he would have preached. Or just a message that would, he would say, this is, this is how I want to communicate to you. I believe that the author is the Apostle John, the beloved disciple. Uh, this would be uh, one of the three in the inner circle of Jesus, Peter, James, and John. John would have been the one who, when he writes his gospel, the gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Um, in the gospel of John, he refers to himself as the beloved disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Okay? So he had a special relationship with Jesus. This apostle is, was probably the last of the apostles to die. He probably died at a very old age. Uh, it is believed that he was the pastor of one or possibly several of the churches that Paul started in Ephesus. Okay? So Ephesians, Paul got that going, right? And now the Apostle John is later, he's actually a shepherd over that church or potentially some of those churches. He gives a specific purpose in writing this book. And he tells us, in fact, what that purpose is. If you want to open your Bible to 1 John... And look at verse number four. He says this. He says, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, if you're using uh, a King James Version, it's going to say that your joy might be complete. And there's a variant there. Most likely it's, it's our, plural, but it's inclusive. He's, he's saying, hey, as the writer and as the reader, both of us. Okay, I'm writing this so that we all can have full joy. What's he talking about here? And is this, is this what we're going to find out in this book? Are we, are, is the purpose of his book to give us joy? If you read 2 John and 3 John, you find out that the Apostle John states something that gives him great joy. And it's to know that his children walk in truth. I want to tell you something, there's no greater joy for a pastor, for a youth pastor, for any pastor. To be able to look at the lives of those to whom he's been preaching and investing his life and to see those people continuing in the faith. And not just continuing in the faith in the sense of attending a church, but where they are enjoying Mutual fellowship with one another. I had this experience this week talking to uh, someone from our church. And they were expressing to me the delight and the joy that they had with getting with some other people from our church and talking about Jesus. And how it was like so refreshing and so life-giving. And you know what, when this person was talking to me, do you know what I do in my heart? I was like, yes, that, that is it. That's what we want. We want people to find joy and and true, genuine life in fellowshipping with one another over the person and in within the person of Jesus. And that's in some ways what the Apostle's writing right here. But there's something prerequisite to that joy, to that joy of fellowship. It's actually right belief. 
and a confidence in one's salvation. So now look at chapter 5 with me. Turn a few pages over to chapter 5. I believe there's uh, 14 times in this book that the apostle uses the phrase, I'm writing these things so that, or I'm writing these things. So when you line all those up, you go, which one is the real purpose for his book, right? For this little letter. Well, chapter 5, in the end, verse 13, he says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. If you begin to evaluate the book of 1 John just on statistics alone, there's one topic that comes up more than any others. By the way, I, I recommend you do this as you read through 1 John over the next few weeks. In fact, can I just can I ask you guys to do this? Read through it every single day for three weeks. Can you do it? It takes about 10 to 20 minutes depending on how fast you read. But then get some colored pencils or crayons if you want, Okay? And mark it up. So I got one of these little journal Bibles. Okay, and I know that you've seen, some of you have seen this before. I believe we got this for the book of 1 Corinthians and things like that. If you want one of these, by the way, and you want me to order you one, just email me. I'll get you one. Okay? I'll, I'll order some if we need to order in bulk or whatever. I mean, they're, they're, they're super cheap. Okay, or you could jump on Amazon and get it yourself. This is 1 John. It's a little journaling Bible. So it's got the, it's got the, the uh, empty pages. What I did in the very beginning, page one, this is, by the way, this isn't part of my message. Sorry, I'm just excited, okay? Um, get your colored pencils and read through it. Read through it one time and just mark in red every time Jesus is mentioned. Jesus, the Son of God, Christ, or pronouns that you know refer back to Jesus. It's like all the time. You're going to find it. Then go through and, and, and you're going to find, you're going to hear things like sinfulness, right? And, and lawlessness and transgressions and things of that sort. So maybe get a black pencil and mark all of the times that sin is talked about. I got a pink pencil and use it for every time that the word love is talked about. Okay? And then I, I got a blue pencil and I underlined every time Statements of belief are mentioned. Like, do you believe this? Like, doctrinal statements that you need to believe. And I underlined that in blue. But then something that jumped out to me is as I began to see the word know, like as in K-N-O-W, not as in N-O, but know started coming out. Like, and it was like, whoa, 39 times in this little book. The apostle uses two Greek words for know. He wants you to know something. And then I took green and I underlined everything that had to do with abiding or walking or continuing in that belief, that love, that life, etc., etc. It's amazing as you begin to just do that, some of the things just begin to pop out of the text. You're like, whoa, this is what he's talking about. I'm starting to understand what he's doing because here's the thing. It's not like other epistles, okay? When you read 1 John, sometimes you feel like you're reading the Proverbs. It's like, where did that come from, okay? Uh, what? It's almost like you have these little pithy statements, and then every now and then you'll have this section that kind of makes sense together, and then you, it's like, what is he doing? So many commentators think that, that the apostle here is, is kind of spiraling through three primary tests, you might say. Three tests uh, for assurance, 
that you might know, since knowing is the primary thing that comes in the book. He's spiraling through, he probably does it anywhere from three to five, depending on who you read, but he he spirals through this content of this book several times, touching in on these three tests, the test of doctrine, the test of sin, the test of love. It's a test concerning your confession. What do you confess is true? It's a test concerning morality, okay? Do you live a holy life? And it's a test concerning your love. And we're going to find out that that's more about the transforming life of Jesus within you working its way out into your community. These are really the three tests in 1 John. And so what we're going to do over the next three weeks is we're going to hit all three tests. Boom, boom, boom. We're going to hit, so, so we're not going to be like going, you know, verse by verse through, through 1 John necessarily, But we're going to be hitting these tests, which means we're going to kind of spiral throughout the book. The first test that we're going to deal with today is the test of doctrine. It's the test concerning your your confession. But let me let me just say this, and I've I've wrestled so much with how to talk about this because the my heart just kind of yearns and aches for for all of you. Because as I look out across the auditorium, as I think about who's watching right now. There are some really hard things that have happened in life. And I really believe that every person in this room and every person watching can have a joy-filled life. And a joy-filled life that is confident that they have eternal life. Some of you have been plagued by doubt and fear surrounding your confession, surrounding your identity as a Christian your whole life. And I want you to know that that can stop. That can end because of the truth in 1 John. Not because I'm going to be so, so, so masterful in, in delivering it. In fact, that's why I really want you to read the Bible every day over the next three weeks is because if I blunder it, the text won't and you'll get it, okay? But I want you to be confident. Some of you, you look over the last week and you're like, am I really a believer? My life doesn't show it. Am I really a believer? I... I I mean, I I say all these things, but do I really believe it? There's a lot of confusion out there. And so my burden is that every one of you, over the next three weeks, would have a rock-solid confidence, not in yourself, but anchored to a text. And you could say, I know that I have eternal life. And then joy becomes central to your life, not peripheral. Joy can become the primary thing. And not only will it be your joy, it'll be my joy. It'll be our joy together. Because you know what? Christian fellowship starts with belief. With belief. Have you ever tried to fellowship with someone that doesn't believe in Jesus? It doesn't work. It doesn't work. You know what it's like to have a conversation with somebody over a long period of time And you kind of wake up to the reality that you never talk about God with that person. You're like, why don't don't we ever talk about Jesus? Why don't we ever pray together? Why don't we ever consider the Lord in our conversation? And all of a sudden you kind of wake up to this reality and you go, whoa, 
something's missing. And I would say, yeah, fellowship and joy are missing. Because Jesus isn't a part of that fellowship. That's what we find out there in the first paragraph of chapter one. All right, I'll stop my intro and let's get into our first test, okay? The test, the three tests of assurance. I really believe that 513 is the primary verse that tells us why he wrote this book. It's so that you may know that you have eternal life. The way that John is going to do this, the way he's going to form these tests is he's going to write in He's going to put things in categories, very clear, very stark categories. Things are very black and white to John. He says things like this, you are either of the light or you're in the dark, okay? You're either full of truth or you're full of lies. You're children of God or you're children of the devil. You either love or you hate. You're either of us or not of us. Life, death, righteousness, lawlessness. There's there's other categories as well that you can find, but those are the primary ones. And so as John writes this book, he says, You are either this or you're this. And what you're going to find out is in many ways that this book becomes a gauntlet, okay? Where as you go through this, you want assurance? You want confidence? Okay, get ready to be beat up (laughs) by the word. But in the end, you will know that you have eternal life. Would you pray with me this morning as we jump into our first test? Let's pray. Lord, would you please come Assist me as we open First John together. Lord, would you help me to say truth? Would you help me to be able to direct us accurately through this book that we might come out knowing and confident that we have eternal life? Lord, I know there are some in this room who are plagued by doubt and fear and torment over the fact that they do not know if they are genuine believers or not. There are some in this room, Lord, that I believe that actually know in, the, in, in, in their heart that they are not believers. They've never submitted themselves to the truths of the gospel. Lord, there are some who are watching who have not had this joyful fellowship that they so long for for an extended period of time and it's causing doubts to creep in. Lord, would you help the word of God, your word, the word you wrote and you had John write. Would you help it to comfort our soul this morning, to encourage us, to give us confidence? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today I want to talk about this. The precondition for knowing you have eternal life is a true confession of Jesus Christ, okay? So the precondition for knowing that you have eternal life is a true confession of Jesus Christ. In other words, I could say it this way, the basis for eternal life is a wholehearted confession of Jesus Christ. But what is the content of this confession? Okay, what what is the content of this belief? What, What is it that I'm actually believing? Well, We can look at the very first paragraph of the book and kind of get an idea of where the apostle is going with the content. Look at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. We have seen it, he says, verse 2, and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. 
John is saying, okay, the, the person that I'm talking to you about is Jesus, who was a human being. He came in the flesh. Jesus came in the flesh. Now, probably for most of us, that's not a difficult issue. Jesus came in the flesh, all right. Interestingly enough, this was an issue just, just a few decades after Jesus was here. Was he really a human? <laughs> in fact, there was a man by the name of Serenthus who also lived in Ephesus about the time of the Apostle John. In fact, the pastor that followed the Apostle John in Ephesus, his name was Polycarp, he told Irenaeus, and Irenaeus wrote this down, wrote this story down, a story about the Apostle John and Serenthus. And some of you have probably heard this story. Serenthus in Ephesus was a false teacher. And he was teaching, and, and this is significant, by the way, we'll come to this towards the end of our message today. He was teaching that Jesus was just a human born of Joseph and Mary. But that when Jesus started his ministry by entering into the water of baptism, that the Spirit of Christ descended upon him there. And then enabled him throughout his ministry. And then just before his crucifixion, the Spirit of Christ left. And then Jesus died. So that way, you know, because God, God won't die for sure. The story goes that the Apostle John was in the bathhouse there at Ephesus. And while in the bathhouse, he learned and he heard that Serenthus was in the same bathhouse. And as soon as he heard that, he got up and he fled and he left everything he had and just ran out of the building and encouraged other people to do so because he didn't want to be in the same building as that false teacher, lest the building come down. Now, we don't know for sure if the Apostle is writing against Serenthus in this book. But it does seem that he's emphasizing quite a bit throughout the book Jesus' humanity. He was a, a, a human, but it's not just that, right? Notice even the very first line, that which was from the beginning. Okay, that which was from the beginning. So Jesus came in the flesh, his incarnation. Look at, look at chapter 4, verse 2, real quick. Interestingly enough, it says this, by this you know. By the way, that little phrase, by this you know, I think happened like 10 to 12 times in the epistle. By this you know. Verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. All right, so the important piece of this confession is that Jesus has come in the flesh. There's another one. Jesus is the Son of God. Of God. Look at 4.14. Just a few verses down. It says, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. All right, so it's really important in this confession that we state and that we say Jesus is the Son of God. And by the way, it's the Son of God. There's this definite article there. It's not just like a Son of God, you know, like we're all sons and daughters of God. No, it's not what it's talking about. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the one who would come and die. Verse 10, just up above, it says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The Son of God, the Savior, came. It's 
It's very important to our confession. Look at chapter 5, verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? (laughs) Interesting. So if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you overcome the world. Look at verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. I don't want to spend time on this one because we're going to come back to this. This is going to be one of the primary spots we stop. But I just want to show you, Jesus being the Son of God is really important throughout 1 John. Another one. Jesus is the Christ. Go back to chapter 2. Verse 22. It says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Go to chapter 4, verse 2. We already read this, but by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Go to chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Wow. These are, just, I mean, these are some pretty potent statements. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, then you've been born of God. Should give us some encouragement this morning. That's the content of the confession. Now, I just want to say this. I, I don't believe that John is literally saying that if you will just say those words, like verbally pronounce the syllables to say those words, that you're saved and have eternal life. There's something about this profession and confession that makes it actually very difficult to say. And I want us to think about that for just a moment. Before we end up making light of this and saying, oh, of course, hey, I say Jesus came in the flesh. I say Jesus is the Son of God. I say Jesus is the Christ. I celebrate Christmas, don't I? Why is this so hard? It's not in the words themselves, but it's in the abiding implications of these words. It means that Jesus is the eternal one, the one who's always been God. It means that Jesus died. It means that Jesus rose. It means that Jesus is the reigning victor. Now let's pause on all of those for a moment. It means that a human being named Jesus is the total authority on everything. Everything. Do you want to say that? In our Western individualistic society, are you willing to say Jesus can tell me everything? And what is right and what is true about everything. Now, I'm not going to do it in this room. I asked the teenagers today, just out of curiosity, I said, how many of you think masks are a good idea? And how many of you think masks are bad ideas? You know, it was split, just like I figured it would be. How do you know? Well, Because this really smart guy said this. 
Nuh-uh, this really smart guy said this. How do you know it's true? Do you realize that if you're believing in Jesus, you're actually saying Jesus is the authority on everything? It means that our thoughts are subversive and mutinous. Have you ever thought about the government of Jesus? It's not a democracy. It's not a democratic republic. You don't get a representative in the sense of, you know, having different people for your opinions. Nope, nope. God is it. He's ruler. He's Lord. There's not one area of your life that his government doesn't reach into and control. Because if you sin, you go to hell. Okay, I don't know if I really want to confess this. Are you really saying that Jesus is a dictator? Yep, I am actually. Because he's God and he's the ruler and the authority with nobody else competing for that position. He's fully God and and here's why it's so hard for us to say is because we are fully sinners. Look at chapter 1 verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. (laughs) You say you don't have any sin in you? I'm not a sinner. Well, you're a liar, this passage says. (laughs) Look at verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, it's a little bit different, right? If we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Oh, I've never sinned. Well, then God's a liar, (laughs) So either you're a liar or he's a liar. And that's how this works. And that's how this works. You confess that God, Jesus, is God, the ultimate, the ruler, and that you're not. That's what's in this confession. That's why this confession is so hard. That's why this confession is so narrow. It also means that we listen to and we obey him. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice, they hear me, they listen to me, they obey me. It also means there's no other option for eternal life. Very, very not a cool thing to say today. (laughs) Because not every way gets you where you want to go. Your truth is not just good for you because it's your truth. There is only the truth and Jesus is the source of it. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. That's what Jesus said. It means you let him take rule, or let him rule and take up residence in your life. It means a rejection of autonomy, a rejection of individualism. And refusal to submit is followed And met with absolute judgment and condemnation. This is why this confession is really hard. In fact, I would suggest to you that this confession is completely impossible for you to do. It is impossible for you to confess this genuinely. Apart from, and this is my second point, only the Holy Spirit generates 
a right confession. Only the Holy Spirit generates a right confession. Okay, so the precondition for knowing we have eternal life is true confession of Jesus Christ. But only the Holy Spirit can actually generate a true confession. Go to chapter 2, even the, the passage there that Herb read for us this morning. Verse 20. He says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. In other words, you have knowledge of the truth and you have the anointing. You have the Holy Spirit who's going to lead you with that truth to confess it correctly. Now we're going to kind of fly through these because I want to get to the rest of my text. Chapter 4, verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Did you catch that? By this you know the the Spirit of God. Now, in chapter 4, it's interesting because he says, test the spirits. Right? Chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. And this is not wine testing. Okay? He's saying, test every belief, every truth claim, test it, because behind every claim is either the Spirit of God or demonic activity behind every truth claim. Let's not forget that, by the way. I think sometimes we can forget that in our society. It's kind of like, oh, that's just not quite right. It's demonic. And it's got its source in the devil, according to John. But every spirit, how do we know the spirit of God? How do we know if God's the one at work? Well, because the person is confessing that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Okay? Chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Born of God. We could take that phrase, we could go to John chapter 3, and we find out that the one that, that, that... causes birth to happen in you is the Holy Spirit. He's the one that causes new birth to happen in you. So whoever believes has been born of God. Go to chapter 4, verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. You want to know what the most clear evidence is? of your gen- the genuineness of your faith and conversion, it's actually that you have the indwelling Holy Spirit living inside of you. Now let's talk about that. Now let's go to chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. And with this, we're going to kind of wrap up the message. Okay, This is the primary text I want us to look at for this second point to understand the significance and assurance that comes from knowing that the Holy Spirit is the one that generates this confession. Okay? Look at verse 6. Chapter 5, verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And now the reason why I think that is significant is because Serenthus was teaching that Jesus came in the water, as in at, the, at his baptism, and that's when Christ, the, the Christ Spirit came upon him, and then it left before the crucifixion. John seems to say, no, 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 no. There are two historical 
testimonies to the reality of Jesus Christ having come in the flesh. One is his inauguration there and his baptism when the, the clouds parted and God said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That was the water when he got baptized. But then he says, not the water only, but by water and the blood. In other words, Jesus, the God man, the son of God, the Christ had his body torn open on the cross and his blood flowed. Two historical testimonies or witnesses to the truth and says this, and the spirit is the one who testifies. The spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. Okay? The spirit of God is fully true and he's the one who's going to make this testimony. He's the one who's going to convince. Now, if you have a King James Version here, and I'm not, I'm not bashing the King James Version or anything like that, but it has this phrase in there about the Holy Ghost and the Father and the Son, and it's really confusing. That's actually not really in any of the original texts. Okay? There's, there's very few um, Greek manuscripts that would have that, and they're very late, and um, I don't want to get into all of that. But verse 7 would read this way, according to the Greek text, for there are three that testify. And I would suggest that the three that he's talking about is what he says in verse 8. The spirit and the water and the blood. Okay, so there's a historical witness to Jesus, and that is the water, that is his baptism. There's another historical witness, that is the blood, the death of Jesus Christ. But then there's another one, and that is what the spirit does with the historical truths, is he actually infuses it into your life so you believe it. He convinces you of that truth. In fact... He kind of says that. Verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the historical witnesses, those who were eyewitnesses, just like he had said in the beginning, right? Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. I saw it. I was there. I touched him. I handled him. I know what I saw with my eyes and, and, and was there with him, okay? I'm giving you eyewitness testimony. He said, so if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater than even the testimony of men. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. Isn't that what God said about his son? He said it a couple different times, right? He said it at the baptism. He also said it on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That's the testimony that God is born concerning his son. So that history testifies to the truth of Jesus, but history is not sufficient by itself. Apologetics are wonderful, but they can, only go, they can only go so far in giving oneself confidence. I've known some people who struggled so much with their salvation that they decided that what they were going to do is they're going to study apologetics so they can get really good at defending their faith because they're wanting to defend their own faith. They're trying to figure out if I really believe. Guess what? Apologetics... And it, it, it's, it's a good study. Don't, you know, I'm, I'm not saying it's bad. But it can't give you assurance of your faith. Only the Spirit of God can do that. Because there is a third witness. It's not just the two historical witnesses. It's the third witness, the Holy Spirit, whose witness is superior in origin, whose witness is superior in content. He takes the other two witnesses and he gives them meaning in the heart and the life of the believer. And it is totally effective. It works. When the Spirit 
bears witness in your heart about the realities of Jesus Christ, you testify. Jesus came in the flesh. Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus is the Christ. This is so important. Don't miss this. This is so important. And this, by the way, is the test made really, really clear right here in these verses. Look at verse 10. The test is made really, really clear. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. What does that mean? Whoever believes, literally it's this, whoever believes into the Son of God. The one who believes into Jesus in being united with Jesus has this testimony in himself. Well, what testimony is that? It's the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Affirming, confirming in your heart that you believe that Jesus, the one you're in, is eternal life. So whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe has made, excuse me, does not believe God has made him, that would be a capital H, God, a liar. Because he's not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Now, I forgot to click through all these. I'm sorry, I got too excited. Here's the test made simple. Okay? We, what is your response to the historical witness to Jesus? And what is your response to the Spirit's witness to Jesus? Verse 10, whoever believes has this testimony himself. Whoever does not believe is making God a liar. So let me just stress what, what is significant about this. If you pass this test, you say, I really do believe these things. I believe that Jesus came in the flesh. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and I believe that he is the Christ. I believe that with all of my heart. Guess what? You pass the test, and you have eternal life. Listen to this quote. Following his regeneration, there develops in the believer the growing inner conviction that the things that the Spirit has borne witness to are true and that they are true in his own life. In other words, these aren't just propositional sentences that you have to repeat in wholehearted confessions that only the Spirit of God can generate. However, if you fail, and this is significant, if you fail, you go to hell. I just want, I mean, I want that to sit for a second because it's a big deal. If you fail this test, you go to hell. Listen to this. Unbelief is not a misfortune to be pitied, but a sin to be deplored. Its sinfulness lies in the fact that it contradicts the word of the one true God and thus attributes falsehood to him. Now that's a very strong statement, but it's actually what the text says. Look at verse 10, the second half. Whoever does not believe God has made him, that is God, a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. If you don't believe, you're, you're, you're saying God is a liar. Once again, those are your options. That's why, once again, that's why this confession is so hard. 
And why only those who have the Holy Spirit in them will actually genuinely say this and mean it. Because you can't, you can't make this stuff up. You can't pretend to like want Jesus as your king. I mean, do you really want Jesus as your king? As your ruler? Do you want him saying that you should not lust in your heart? Do you want him saying that every idle word that man speaks he'll give account for? And I think that that also talks about your thumbs. Okay? Your tweets and your texts and your posts. Every idle word you're going to give account for. Do you really want that? If you have the Holy Spirit in you, you do. And you say yes. Not because you're perfect. But because there's some miraculous thing that has happened within you. The Holy Spirit has awakened you and given you genuine life. And from that you confess and you say, Jesus is the Son of God who died for me and rose and lives and I fellowship with him. Do you pass the test? It's totally unnatural for you to say these things and to mean them. So the encouraging thing is this. If you find in your heart that you say, I believe these things, then according to 1 John, you have been born of God. You are from God and you possess eternal life. Look at the next phrase, verse 11. And this is the testimony that you have in yourself. This is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. Eternal life. Go back to chapter one. You'll see it again. Let's review it. He talks about that which is from the beginning, that which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you. What is it? He doesn't say we we proclaim to you Jesus. He could have. Instead he says this, we proclaim to you the eternal life. Jesus is eternal life. Go back to chapter 2, verse 25. And this is the promise that he made to us. Eternal life. Back to our primary text there in chapter 5. And this life is in his son. Verse 12. Here's Here's the final recap of the test. You ready? Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now, we've only gone through one of the three tests. However, I'm hoping that in your heart you're really encouraged. Because the only way someone would genuinely adhere to that profession and say, yes, I really do believe those things, is if the Spirit of God has been working in you and His testimony is in you. You have the Son. You have life. Now, it's going to bring up questions. Lots of questions, and that's okay. That's why I want you to read First John a lot. What happens if I sin, because doesn't sin reveal the disingenuineness of my confession? Mm-hmm, it does. So then what do I believe about sin? Like how does sin relate to this whole thing? You got to come back next week. Because next week we're going to deal with the second test 
of how you can know you have eternal life, and that is, what do you say and what do you believe about sin? And we're going to need to dive into that. And it's going to be really rich for all of us. But you know what's going to be really hard for all of us? Because as is so true, I find that the grace that God uses to keep us secure is often the grace he uses to rebuke and to discipline us. Because only his children receive discipline. And so as we go through 1 John, some of you might find it very difficult as you're reading those passages and convicting because of the sin that you've allowed to dwell in your heart. And it may be that what God is going to do is he's going to use the text of 1 John and next week as we go into sin and talk about sin and then the following week as we go into the, the transforming effect of God's love in our life, that God's going to use these things to actually convict you that you need to repent and turn from sin. But it also may be that if you've heard the Spirit this morning speaking to you through the text, which is how he does it. He doesn't do it any other way. Speaking to you through the text. It could be that you know already that you need to repent and believe this to be true. Because you are not of God. And you do not have life. If that's true of you, I'm getting ready to close us in prayer. And during this prayer, I am gonna, I'm going to pray a prayer of faith. Once again, this prayer, the words themselves do not save you, but if inside your own heart, the testimony of the Spirit is bearing witness and saying, yes and amen, I believe these things to be true, then you are a child of God, not on my word, but on His. So let's pray together this morning.